as was already mentioned this evening, we are thankful that we can come together on this Sunday afternoon and not only appreciate an earlier worship service today, but also a second opportunity to encourage ourselves with the Word of God, to set before us the greatest and only truth of all time, which is found in God's holy volume. It is good to see each person again here this evening. I'm sure you've already noticed behind me on the wall, as well as perhaps at the bulletin, that tonight's lesson will be a matter of preservation, the preserving of the seed line. The very thought behind that, of course, will be a rather rich one. It'll be a matter of God's marvelous providence, and it will set before us His intent to carry out His promises to those whom He has made them, and that includes you and me. It is, with all of that said, why don't we look at an introductory slide that goes like this. The psalmist declared in Psalm 119, verse 161, I stand in awe of thy word. God's word is so tremendous, and quite often nuggets of truth found therein are not only rich for the present, but give us a panoramic view of His overarching control of history, and that in many ways will be the truth and the consideration tonight. Not only that, the idea of our title that I selected, Seed Line, no, the word seed is a part of this. And of course, the word seed carries a rather significant place in the Bible. For one thing, Luke 8, 11 declares that the seed of the kingdom is the Word of God. And thus, that kind of seed is certainly vital and necessary. But may I suggest that our lesson tonight will involve a different kind of seed. The seed mentioned not only in Genesis 3, but also re-mentioned later in Galatians chapter 3 as well. We'll come to all of those in due course. For right now, one of the ways we often use the concept of seed is from one generation to the next. And a preserving of the seed line will involve the preservation of a certain bloodline. And that'll be our focus. That'll be our consideration for the evening. Perhaps it would do well to begin then to cast the first prophecy found in the opening chapters of the Word of God. We recall the scene rather easily. Wasn't it true that Adam and Eve found themselves in a lovely place called Eden? And in that garden, they had a wonderful relationship with each other as well as with God Himself. They were faithful and true, but the time came when, under the encouragement of the tempter, we remember that Eve chose to partake of that forbidden fruit, and of course Adam soon thereafter followed. And in that place of sin, we recall that God addressed first the serpent, and then He addressed the woman, and then He addressed the man, and in each place He gave punishments, and He also made statements. It's verse 15 of Genesis 3 that will be our first major blockbuster passage of the night. Wasn't it true that to Satan, right after the matter of this transgression in Eden, God said, I will put enmity between thee and the woman, and between thy seed and her seed. It shall bruise thy head, thou shalt bruise his heel. Now much might be, of course, said about that, and could I just invite you to note the following. Let's piece together some of the appreciations of that passage. I, that refers to God, will put enmity between thee and the woman. As you can see on the slide, that word enmity 
has to do with personal hatred, personal animosity, personal hostility. Thus, between the seed of the woman and the seed that would be of Satan, there was going to be a great deal of hatred, a great deal of opposition one to the other, and that was going to be manifested throughout the years and the generations that followed. Now, perhaps we aren't that surprised that, of course, Satan's opposed to God. And if it was God's idea that the seed of the woman should ultimately make salvation a possibility and give to the human family the message of redemption, maybe it's easy to appreciate that her seed and the seed of Satan, that is to say his emissaries on earth, would not be getting along. But could we note one more thing? The latter part of that verse expressly said, Thou shalt bruise his heel. So the seed of Satan was ultimately going to bruise the seed of the woman in the heel. Now you and I know that a wound or at least an injury in the heel is something that though it may be, it may be inconvenient and it may be uncomfortable, it is one that you can overcome. It's one that will allow you to continue to live. But the Lord also told Satan on that occasion that there would be a wound in the head of Satan. It shall bruise thy head. Now the word it refers to the seed of the woman. And of course, to bruise Satan's head, we all know that when you get a significant blow in the head, it not only is very serious, it can be fatal. It can be very much deadly. And so it was to be that the seed of the woman was to ultimately overwhelm the devil, crush his power, and deal him a fatal blow. Now in that passage, we have found a great deal already. But isn't it true that in the things we've seen, there is an emphasis upon the seed of the woman. Now you and I realize that as a woman gives birth to, to children, and then those children give birth to children, and so on down the line, there is going to be a preservation of the seed of the woman. At this point, leaping forward to Galatians chapter 3, we know who the seed of the woman was to be. It was to be, it was to be Christ. Notice that in that chapter, as that is in fact set before us, it is a rather touching and pivotal thing to appreciate. For right now, could we not say this? From the time then that God made this statement to the devil, it was to be approximately 4,000 years before Jesus was born in Bethlehem. Approximately four millennia. Forty centuries. And so it was to be that you and I can now pause to note the following. Through all that time, there was going to need to be the preservation of the line of the woman ultimately emanating, of course, in the reality of Jesus the Christ. How was that all preserved? What were some things that took place that not only offered points of challenge, but that furthermore bring us to realize the providence of God in the preserving of the bloodline? No wonder at that point. Let's start looking at a number of them. So I'm going to select several places throughout the history of the Bible and as we highlight them, we will cast a spotlight on these moments when it looked as if the seed line was going to be destroyed. It looked as if the hope was weak, if not altogether removed. 
And yet, through it all, God's great providence not only preserved the seed line, but God's promise in regard to the seed of the woman did come to pass. First of all, the days of Noah. Now, the scene of what this statement was that God made to the serpent took place in Genesis 3. Less than three chapters later, in Genesis chapter 6, we notice there in verse number 5 that the thoughts of men's heart was only evil continually. The world had degenerated far from what was the intended place by virtue of the wish of heaven. Men had become evil. However, in verses 8 and 9, mention is made that it was a man named Noah, and he found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Noah intended to serve the God of heaven despite the wickedness of the world in which he lived. We well remember, God told Noah to construct an ark. And so, in fact, he did over a rather lengthy period of time. But it's fascinating to notice that Noah was a preacher of righteousness, 2 Peter 2 verse 5. That means he encouraged, he warned, he set before the people the fact that there was a coming flood and that they needed to make ready. But the reality was this. When the flood waters came, eight souls only were aboard that ark. Eight. We are told that in 1 Peter 3 verse 20. Eight. Now as you reflect on the matter of the population of earth at that time. You remember that lifespans back then were very lengthy. Noah himself lived to be very, very aged, 950 years old. Now, many of the others, of course, also were lengthy, and so there were lots and lots of children, and the number of those who could trace their lineage, of course, back to Adam and to Eve were large. However, only eight souls were aboard the ark. Notice how close they were coming to annihilation. The number is now down to eight. But thankfully they were preserved. In the midst of all that wickedness, we now find this set of eight who had remained loyal to God. Now of that eight, remember, three of them were Noah's sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And so one of them would be the one through whom the bloodline, the seed line was to be preserved. Look at the next one. Now we leap forward a few hundred years. I perhaps should have mentioned that the flood took place in the year 1656. From the creation until the flood waters came, 1,656 years. Now if you proceed forward another 400 years, so now roughly the year 2000, we find a man named Abraham. Now, you might recall that one more time, the preservation of the seed line is necessary, and God had determined it would be through Abraham. But there was something notable here. Abraham, by the time we encounter him, was already a rather old man. And he and his wife Sarah had no children. Sounds as though another difficult time. How are we going to preserve the seed line? Remember, Abraham was already age 75 when God called him to leave Ur of the Chaldees in Genesis 12. No children. You and I remember a number of years later, it was this idea of Abraham and Sarah that they, in fact, would offer a possibility to get God out of this difficulty. And so, 
Abraham went into Hagar, and Ishmael was born, but Ishmael was not the son of promise. And he was born when Abraham was 86 years old. So we still have no seed of Abraham that was to carry forth the seed line. We have to go all the way to age 100. Here's a 100-year-old man and his 90-year-old wife, still with no children. But yet God had determined the seed line would be preserved. And so in this remarkable gift from the God of heaven, Isaac was born to the aged Abraham and his wife Sarah. The seed line was preserved. Isaac was to be that son of promise of Abraham. And so when he was born in Genesis 21, we find not many chapters thereafter. In fact, God directly declared him in Genesis 26 to be that seed line carrying forward the promise. But did you notice how close they came? It was dependent upon a 90-year-old woman giving birth. But she did. Isn't God wonderful? Let's go to the next one. We readily find in Genesis 49 the selection of one of the sons of Jacob. So we remember that Isaac had a son, in fact two sons, but Jacob was the one selected to carry forth the promise. And among Jacob's sons, it was not to be the eldest. In fact, it was the fourth oldest boy in which something was dramatically declared. Genesis 49.10 would say, Speaking about Judah, the fourth oldest son of Jacob, he was to be the one that would be the continual lawgiver until Shiloh would come. The word Shiloh means bringer of peace. That's an interesting reference to Jesus. When the Shiloh, the great bringer of peace, was to come, we realize it would be through the loins, through the lineage, if you please, of none other than Judah. And with that, the curtain closes on the book of Genesis. But it brings us rather quickly to the book of Exodus. The people of Judah found themselves in trouble there as well. In fact, they were serving the people in Egypt. We remember how difficult things became. The Israelites were made slaves. They were made servants of the Egyptian people, and they were forced to undergo hard bondage and very difficult rigor. And we remember that God determined through Moses to lead them out of Egypt and to take them to a land of promise and a land of Canaan. But do we remember what happened in chapter 13? After the plagues had come and after the people had left Egypt, here they were, the Egyptians behind them, the Red Sea in front of them. Contained in that group of people was the seed line. What if they had been destroyed, all of them, at the Red Sea? That's what the Egyptians intended. And here they were, the water in front, the pursuing Egyptians behind, and God opened a passageway through that Red Sea, and they passed through on dry ground. And then the waters came over and drowned the pursuing Egyptians. But the seed line had been preserved again. And now they proceeded onward to journey through the wilderness and arrive at that land of Canaan. As all of that took place, doesn't it now bring us to the time of David? We now are a number, a few hundred years after the time frame of what we just observed. But God had declared that to David the seed line would pass through him. 2 Samuel 7 verses 1 to 12 tell us this. 
God declared it to declared it to David. And so it was. Can we not remember that David himself had a number of problems and troubles, not the least of which the difficulties he faced in light of his children. For after all, wasn't it so? David had a number of wives and a number of children. We probably remember Solomon best of all, but that wasn't the only boy. There were many others. Which one would be the one through whom the seed line would be maintained? Let's study onward and see. I've asked you to notice on that slide, among the particular kings that reigned thereafter, and those that occupied the continuing bloodline from David, maybe Joash is worthy of our immediate reflection. I've asked you to recollect the scene in 2 Kings 11, and it's echoed in 2 Chronicles 22. In those chapters, if I could basically paint the issue for us, you remember the days of Ahab and Jezebel, and the wickedness that they wrought among the people of God, and the idolatry that they encouraged. And we touched on some of that this morning. But perhaps we should well remember they had a daughter. And you well remember that she too was very wicked. Her name, Athaliah. Now, as you read through the Old Testament, you encounter this woman, of course, in some places, and what you readily learn is she was worse than her mother. Now, if you think Jezebel was bad, and without doubt she was, her daughter was worse. She was not only overwhelmingly given to idolatry, but she made it her desire, her absolute goal, to absolutely eliminate the bloodline of David. May I say again, her mission was to exterminate the seed line of David. Now notice that's exactly opposite to what the will of God had been. God had decreed it would be the seed of the woman that would be preserved, and yet this woman, this evil Athaliah, she determined to destroy all of the seed royal that would have included the bloodline. Was she successful? Did she carry out this desire and wish that she had? 2 Kings 11, as well as 2 Chronicles 22, detail this is what she did. She had all of her own grandchildren slaughtered. Her intent to destroy the bloodline. But one of them was preserved. The aunt of the one that was preserved, which would have been also the, one of the stepchildren of this woman, took the little boy, Joash, and hid him so that Athaliah's evil servants couldn't find him and kill him. They had killed all of his brothers and sisters, but Joash was preserved. Don't you find it ironic where they hid him? They hid him in the temple. Perhaps the place in which this woman had little interest in being, and yet in the bedchamber of the temple, the text says, they hid him for six years. Think about that. For six long years, that little boy was hidden in the temple. But it was the seed line of David. He was preserved. And when the time was right, he was proclaimed to be the next king. And when Athaliah heard it, not only was she surprised, she thought she had succeeded in destroying all the seed royal. She was beside herself in almost disbelief. 
And soon thereafter, she too bent her death. The seed line was preserved. Don't you love the providence of God? Doesn't it excite you to reflect upon how God did bring about His will? And though God's people came close to losing the bloodline, in every case it was ultimately preserved. On that slide, I might invite you to open the next one. There was the Babylonian captivity, and so the time came when God's people, the people of Israel, due to their own wickedness and due to their own rebellion to God, God allowed them to be taken captive by a foreign power, the power we call Babylon. In fact, Jeremiah had much to say about the scenes when they would be taken captive, and he, in fact, lamented over Jerusalem when the captivity had taken place, as the book of Lamentations reminds us. But isn't it fair to say that there were great difficulties when they were taken captive? Here, the bloodline was now in a foreign land. It was not in Judah anymore. It was in Babylon, but it was preserved. We read in the book of Jeremiah especially about the challenges that they faced. Would they remain loyal to God? Many of them didn't. They gave themselves over to the Babylonian culture. They gave themselves over to the Babylonian way of religion, and they lost confidence and faithfulness in God. But thanks be unto God, some of them remained faithful to the God of heaven. They remained true to the word that they had been given. The bloodline, the seed line was preserved. Surely in that connection we come near the bottom of that slide and maybe we arrive at another moment of crisis when we come to the Persian kingdom over which we find that they ruled God's people. And what about the days of Haman and the days of Mordecai? You remember what Haman's idea was in Esther chapter 3. His goal was to destroy every Jew on earth. Had he succeeded, that would have exterminated the bloodline. The seed line that would ultimately emanate in Christ would have been broken. But we all remember, as we saw in lessons several weeks ago, that Haman was not successful. Through the agency of Esther and the work of Mordecai, his plan was thwarted, and he was hanged on the very gallows that he had made with the intent to hang Mordecai. But do you notice how close the bloodline came? They were to be destroyed according to the decree of Haman on the 13th day of the 12th month, in the very year in which they were then, in, in which they were then living. In a matter of months it would have been gone. But God worked mightily, and in less than two months' time, that plan had already been thwarted because Haman was dead. And there we have it. The bloodline was preserved. If we pause at this point just to say this, isn't it a rather panoramic idea to note there were times God's people were on the very verge of losing that bloodline. They were within eight people of it in the days of Noah. They were within, you notice here, one person in the days of Esther. In the days of Joash, one person. But the bloodline was preserved. As we go to the next slide, we'll continue that journey and note the following. Let's transition into the New Testament. Several hundred years again now pass, and we arrive at the time when, in fact, Jesus Himself was born. 
But do you remember Herod also had this idea that he did not want any competition to the throne. And upon finding out roughly when the Christ child was born, he had the decree that all the baby boys were to be put to death. Which, if he had succeeded, the bloodline would have brought forth even to Jesus, but it would have ended there. But we all remember that the great God of heaven had again given sufficient information. You remember that to Joseph it was told, You take the child and his mother and flee into Egypt, and there you abide until they who want the baby dead are no longer a threat to him. Matthew chapter 2, verses 21 and following. Joseph did exactly as he was ordered and commanded. And while there, Jesus, of course, was able to grow and... The time came that they moved back to the city of Nazareth. And there the Lord, of course, grew up. On that slide, you'll notice one more time how near to victory that Satan was. If he could have had Jesus killed while yet a baby, then he wouldn't have been able to go to the cross. And he wouldn't have been able to put in place and execute the marvelous plan of human redemption. But of course, God preserved Jesus. And in so doing, the bloodline continued on to bring about the fact that the seed of the woman could crush the head of the, of, of the, head of the serpent itself. The next matter on the slide, could I offer you this one? One more time, matters hung in the balance when we reflect upon the temptations of Jesus. In Matthew chapter 4, the Lord, of course, had now arrived at the point in His life when He was sufficient enough to address the matter of temptation. The devil came before Him, and He had just fasted, of course, 40 days. And the devil said, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to be made bread. Could we offer this thought? Had the Lord given in to any one of those temptations, He would not have been perfect. He would not have been sinless. He could not have been the sinless sacrifice for us, and His death at Calvary would not have been able to have the power to offer forgiveness for us. Oh, how greatly things hung in the balance. What if He had given in? Turn these stones to bread. You know He was hungry. Could any of us go 40 days without food? I doubt it. The Lord had done it. And in that moment he said, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. But Satan wasn't ready to give up. He then tested him this way. He said, as he carried him up to the pinnacle of the temple, Cast yourself off, for it's written, He shall not suffer his anointed in such a way that his foot shall be dashed against a stone. In essence, Satan tempted him this way, if you are the Son of God, jump off the pinnacle of the temple. Doesn't the Old Testament prophesy in Psalm 91 that you'll not be destroyed? Prove it to me. Let me see you do it. Wouldn't it be easy for one's ego to get in the way? Well, I'll show you exactly I'm the Son of God. Watch me. The Lord didn't give in to that temptation. He quoted from the book of Deuteronomy and said, Thou shalt not tempt the Lord thy God. And that was the end of that. But Satan had one more up his sleeve. He said, if you will bow down and worship me, I will give you all of the kingdoms of the world at a moment of time. Every one of them will be yours. 
talk about the desire for prestige and reign and rulership and pomp and circumstance. He had the opportunity. Every person of every nation would have been able to bow before him. But Jesus knew had he done it. Though they might have given their attention to him, he couldn't have saved them from their sins. And so he said, It's written, Thou shalt worship the Lord thy God, and him only shalt thou serve. And then the text says, The devil left him for a season. The devil had failed. The Lord had not given in. He was still the perfect one, continuing the necessary matters of the bloodline. And so on that slide, we now come to his death. We transition to the conclusion of his life upon earth. Satan had one more chance. The devil had failed to interrupt the bloodline. He had failed to interrupt the seed line, though he had come close at times, such as the days of Esther, the days of Joash, the days of Noah. But he had failed. He had also failed to destroy the baby Jesus. He had one more chance. What about the Lord's death? If he could get to G, if he could get Jesus to abdicate what he was doing, the Lord knew what pain was yet to come. Didn't he not pray in the Garden of Gethsemane, Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. He knew how much pain was going to be his the next day. He knew what excruciating agony would be his. He knew what insult was going to be the case. And so at this moment, he had one last chance, the devil did. If I can bring enough pain, maybe he will wish to get out of this. Roman crucifixion was known to be almost beyond inhumane. Jesus even admitted in Matthew 26, 53, Peter, put up your sword. Don't you know I could call twelve legions of angels to deliver me from this moment? The Lord could have removed Himself at any time, but He didn't. He went through with it, and He Himself could say, It is finished in John 19, verse 30. We've seen through all of this that the bloodline, the seed line, continued. Let me now pause to develop a thought of success. That promise that God had made to the serpent in Genesis 3.15, notice how it had come to pass. The serpent did bruise the heel of Jesus. He killed him, no doubt about it. But he did not thwart the plan and purpose for which Christ had come. But on the other hand, Jesus had dealt a fatal blow to the devil. When Jesus died sinless, when He died without sin, He was able to then be that perfect sacrifice for all who would come to Him. In the words of 1 John 3, 8, He had destroyed the power of the devil. And there we have it. He had crushed the head of the serpent. No wonder the serpent, uh, Satan, had thrown everything he could trying to interrupt the bloodline, trying to interrupt the seed line, but he had failed. He had failed. Tonight, aren't we appreciative and thankful for the working of God's plan throughout the ages? 4,000 years of human history between the time of the promise in Genesis 3.15 and the reality of the Lord's life and death in the gospel accounts of the New Testament. And through all that time, the seed line was preserved. 
God's will had been done. I hope our view of history and our understanding of it is a wonderful reflection of how wonderful our God is. Could we not close the lesson then by asking this, if God could preserve through 4,000 years, despite the mistakes of man, the weakness of man, the misdirection of man, if He could still preserve the seed line, can He not preserve you and I, if we'll be faithful to Him, to a marvelous heavenly home? Sure He can. It won't be any difficulty at all for Him, but we have to be faithful. Let's close our lesson with a slide of conclusion. The text of Genesis 3.15 is moving and compelling and oh so remarkable, specifically because of historical matters that were related to it and the way in which we saw the preservation of the seed line. Today, could I not then close by saying all of us are the children of God by faith. We are a part of, an, of a remarkable seed line. We too, upon our faith to the Lord, Galatians 3.29, will be preserved until that sweet and final and glorious, victorious day. Tonight, if there's someone in this assembly that's not living faithfully to the Lord, perhaps though once you did, as of tonight you're not, you know the situation of your life. You know the matters upon which you think and what you do each day. If that's not consistent to the Bible, you need to make some changes. And you need to make them now. Don't wait till tomorrow. Today is the day of salvation, 2 Corinthians 6 verse 2. If we could be of some help tonight in that regard, we would encourage and invite you, just as the Lord does, to repent of those errors. That is to say, intend to do them no more. Turn your life around in action and in thought. As you do that, make confession of those things, and the Lord will forgive. If we could help tonight by praying on your behalf, it would be our sweet joy. May I say this song of encouragement has been selected, and at this time, it's a convenient time. That plan of salvation has never changed now in 2,000 years. If you've never become a Christian... Believe in the Lord, repent of your sins, confess His name, and be baptized. Tonight, if we could be of some assistance in either of those ways, we would be delighted to help and do so at once while together we stand and sing.